Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Aquadox, the podcast that keeps you up to date on all things aquatic medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Greenfield. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Chris Parsons, dolphin biologist and the AAAS fellow at NSF doing communications and outreach for the Oceans Division, as well as a host of multiple aquatic podcasts. Seeing as how this podcast is my way of communicating science to a broader audience, this topic of science communication is one that's near and dear to my heart. So let's get started. Hi, Chris. Thanks for being on the show today. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm absolutely uh, love being here. It's great. It's going to be amazing. So I was wondering if we could just start by giving a brief overview of kind of what's led you to where you are today. Well, you know, I'm a dolphin biologist, which really has been a passion of mine ever since I was tiny. My parents said that Halloween, I would put an empty drinks bottle on my back to be an aqualung, and I'd be off pretending I was a scuba diver. So I've always wanted to be a marine biologist. And uh, growing up where I did in the UK, I kind of grew up in like the I guess the sort of the Scranton of Southwest England, lovely countryside around me, but in this really industrial town, people didn't go to university. But luckily I had uh, very supportive parents. They realized that I was kind of weird and (laughs) kind of quirky and supported me, my quest. And yeah, I I sort of grew up and decided that I was going to go to university. I was going to be a marine biologist. I did look at becoming a veterinarian for a while. I did a lot of veterinary practice, but realized that that's not what I wanted to do. I like the animals, but I realized as any vets listening would know, there's a lot of other stuff involved with being a vet. Getting up really, really early in the morning to... (laughs) you know, do the whole back end of a cow thing. Yeah, that's just, just wasn't what I wanted to do. So I, I tried that, but then I ended up going off and doing zoology. And when I graduated, I was very lucky in that a friend of my undergraduate tutor was working in South Africa and happened to have a PhD student who was doing a project on humpback whales and said, hey, why don't you go and work with this guy? He needs some volunteers. Went out to South Africa, had an absolute blast of a time. Went back home, did a little bit of voluntary work. Went out to Hong Kong, met someone at a barbecue who just happened to be the head of WWF Hong Kong, talked about dolphins to him. He said, you know what? We have dolphins in Hong Kong Harbor that no one has studied and they're about to put this massive airport right in the middle of their habitat could you like do me a proposal or something did that hong kong government suddenly decided that they were going to fund this project on dolphins because in their environmental impact assessment they had employed benthic ecologists so they had lots and lots of data about scallops and snails and worms that lived in the sediment they hadn't even noticed that there were pink dolphins swimming around because that was not their species. So I went from this recently graduated person with an undergraduate in zoology, wrote up a proposal at just right place at the right time, ended up getting funded by the Hong Kong government. And next thing I know, I'm flying over to Hong Kong uh, doing this project on pink dolphins in, in the waters of Hong Kong. Now, originally... I had planned to do B 
behavioral ecology. I thought I was going to be looking at dolphins, looking how they interacted with the environment, looking how they behaved. But within about a week of being there, we had a dead porpoise wash up and then a dead dolphin and then another dead dolphin and another dead porpoise and very soon realized that we had a big problem with these animals washing up clearly there was something going on some of these animals had net marks on them some of them had what looked to be injuries from boat well one of them looked as if it had been blown up so my project went very quickly from being behavioral ecology to veterinary science so I suddenly became the person doing the strandings program in Hong Kong. So even though you didn't want to stick your arm in the cow, you still got hooked in. Yeah, it was going to happen. <laughs> it was going to happen. So I ended up spending a lot of time going onto remote beaches, cutting at dolphins, collecting samples, trying to work out what was killing them, collecting bacteriological samples, collecting stomach contents and, and so forth. And yeah, it was really interesting because there was nothing in Hong Kong like a shop with veterinary supplies. So I could make my necropsy kits. Basically, I could make it up at a supermarket. So I would go in and get a steak knife and gloves and various other bits and pieces, some tin foil for the samples. And then I would have to travel to the sites via metro and then bring the samples back via public transport. Did you ever get weird looks with the uh, smells? All the time. I actually got written up in the South China Morning Post because of being this kind of Hannibal Lecter guy who <laughs> would often be on the metro at rush hour with black bags that smelt of dead bodies. I actually had the police look at me once with you know all my kits and a slightly drippy bag. Definitely got lots of space. Even in rush hour, people would make space around me because of this. And what were you looking for in your necopsy? So yeah, I was, I was doing this. Part of the studies, I was also, you know, because we were taking the dolphins apart, looked at their stomach contents to work out what they were feeding on, looked at the liver and the blood tissues to look at heavy metals and pesticides. And it was, well, we're collecting these samples anyway, so let's have a look and see what we have. And the mercury levels were through the roof, the DDT levels were through the roof. The PCB levels were really, really high. So realized that there was a major, major pollution problem. With the stomach contents, I could also look at how these pollutants were going through the food chain. I looked at some of the prey species and did some modeling there with contamination going through the food chain. From someone who thought they were going to be sitting on a clifftop or on a boat, looking at dolphins all day long, it became very lab oriented. But that's where the problem was. That's where the conservation concern was. Because of all these issues, I also became very involved with the politics side of things. We were being funded by the Hong Kong government, and they were constantly asking us about things related to dolphins and policy. And I think we were in this unique situation where 23, 24 years old, and the Hong Kong government was asking for advice about how to deal with dolphin conservation or marine conservation. I realized then the importance of science communication as well. I had really good contacts with various people in the media in Hong Kong, partly because a lot of the journalists who were there were, again, 20-somethings. They were trying to get into newspapers and to radio. They wouldn't have a chance of doing it in the UK or Australia. 
So they went to Hong Kong and were in the English language newspapers, magazines, and so on. And I would just meet them out downtown and chat to them. And before I knew it, I was on all sorts of radio shows and TV shows and various newspapers and so on. So I realized how important it was to have good stories, good contacts with science communication, the importance of understanding policy, that if you're doing scientific research, you have to find out what the policymakers and the regulators and the government people want to know and the framework that they're working in. You could go off as an academic and go, I think this is important for conservation. You could produce some great papers, but unless it's answering a specific question that they have or something specifically related to the law, it's going to end up being not used at all. So finding the questions that needed to be answered by the policymakers really sort of drove a lot of the research. And that was a really good experience. You know, from your experience in Hong Kong, you realize the principles of effective science communication and that you have to figure out what the policymakers need to learn about and need to see. So how has that shaped pretty much like the rest of your career and the way that you view science communication now? Oh, it really was an eye opener. So I ended up starting in a university just outside of Washington, D.C. And because we were so close to Washington, it just became so clear that there was this need to integrate science and policy. And the thing that sort of gelled the two together was communication. You could produce all the best scientific papers in the world, but no one would probably ever read them. The average readership of a scientific paper is two people. So unless you can communicate that to the right people, you're not actually going to get conservation to happen. And different audiences need different types of communication. So if you were talking to, if you want to convince a senator, you kind of need to do it via his constituents. So you have to communicate to his constituents and get the constituents to write to the senator saying, this is an issue for me. I also realized that policymakers might not understand statistics, they might not understand science, but they understand polls. If you can go up to them and say, 70% of your electorates are really concerned about marine conservation, then you're going to suddenly get their attention. So I went from doing all this veterinary environmental work, basically moving into social science and ended up doing a whole bunch of studies, basically doing polling about conservation related issues and then helping to communicate that. So from those studies, what are some of the main takeaways that you have that you think would be important for other scientists and veterinarians to know and keep in mind when we do have research findings about pollution in the water that's affecting animals. Like, how do we get those ideas across? Well, there's a couple of key things. Traditionally, people have the idea that if you just give people facts, then their behaviors will change. And that's not the case. You might not get them to change their behavior or get concerned about something unless you can also engage them personally or emotionally. So you need to have some sort of connection that they can make. And with marine mammals, that's relatively easy because people love whales and dolphins. It's a little harder if you're dealing with fish, but you can always talk to a fisherman and get their story and how they think about the environment and sort of make an emotional connection there. So finding some sort of way of connecting emotionally and personally. In conservation, people often... When they're talking about endangered species, they talk about the species as a 
the whole and they talk about how many thousands of animals there are and how they're decreasing. But if you see the impact that the famous Cecil the lion getting killed had, or Keiko the free willy whale, single animals are something that people can relate to more. They can make a connection with individual charismatic animal, whereas they won't make that connection with a nebulous species. So some of the science we did basically showed that, that you had much more of an impact if you could have this emotional connection to the science as well as having the facts. Also, doom and gloom does not necessarily work terribly well. It gets people's attention, but very soon they get burnt out. You can't just be constantly uh, an Eeyore and going, oh, the world's dying around us. People just get very depressed and feel hopeless. If you have a conservation or environmental issue, you have to go, well, there's this really big problem, but there's a way we can fix it by doing X, Y, and Z. And ideally something that can engage the public into doing that X, Y, and Z. I mentioned before writing letters to policymakers and politicians, that's a great way of getting people engaged. And that actually does have a major impact because if a senator gets a hundred personally written letters that are all different and they're all very personal, talking about their constituents' thoughts about the marine environment or a threatened species, that will have a huge impact. I can definitely see the impact that science communication has had on the work you've done. Can you talk a bit more about why you think podcasts are such an effective tool? Well, I kind of stumbled into podcasting and it ended up becoming a full-time job. So how that happened was I was helping to organize a conference. I, again, in terms of science communication, realized that events and meetings and conferences and so forth are really pretty important to get people together to talk about issues and problems and try and solve them. And uh, I was chatting to Andrew Lewin, who does the Speak Up for Blue podcast, and he was relatively new at doing podcasting, but his podcast was starting to take off. And we pulled him in to this conference to basically do episodes with various key speakers. And I did a couple of episodes with him about what the hot topics were of the conference as a way of doing science communication and getting the reach of the conference out to a much wider audience. And yeah, just ended up becoming a regular on his podcast, really enjoying it, really seeing the benefits of using podcasting as a media. And I realized podcasting was kind of the new medium for storytelling. And um, basically sitting in the bar, chatting with Andrew Lewin, came up with the idea, hey, um, yeah, we're having a lot of fun solving the problems of the world over a couple of years. I mean, why don't we turn this into a podcast, talk about the hot topics of marine conservation and uh, the issues in marine science over a couple of years informally, and let's just see if it works. And we did that, and it just ended up taking off in a way that we really didn't expect and went from this one spin-off podcasting show and just started developing new podcasts marine mammal science environmental studies and sciences dugongs and sea dragons started seeing other 
young marine scientists or conservation scientists also getting interested in podcasting and either help make the connections or pull them into the network and gave them some logistic support. And uh, now Speak Up for Blue is a whole network of uh, a bunch of different podcasts that are going all around the world. Podcasts really are a very effective means of communication. And people will listen to podcasts when they're commuting into work, when they're trying to get their daily exercise, last thing before they go to sleep at night. It's a great way of having a captive audience that you don't get with a tweet, that you don't get with a blog, that you don't get with other types of communication media. And people listen to an entire episode of a podcast as well. Whereas if you look at a YouTube video, a lot of people switch off after 30 seconds or a minute, whereas people will listen to the whole 45 minutes of a podcast. When you're doing a podcast with scientists, the other benefit is you have the scientists talking in their own words, as opposed to going through the filter of a journalist who probably doesn't understand the science or will probably garble it, or a university public relations office who will probably garble it as well or tell the story incorrectly. And with the scientist explaining their science, you also get to see scientists as three-dimensional characters. Their personality comes across, the, you see them as human beings and regular people that can be related to, as opposed to this sort of abstract scientist in a lab coat. And I think that helps with science communication. It helps make a better connection between the public and the scientists. I couldn't agree more. And that's why I started this podcast too, because podcasts are an accessible way for people to you know, learn more about something they're interested in. And you're right, it gives us a human side and that, you know, you're a scientist, we're both scientists, but we're also humans too. And we also like to have fun and talk about fun things and you know, have a drink over chatting about you know, the latest research in marine science. So it's, it's really exciting. Uh, some of the best ones we've had, we've just gone off on side tangents about Star Wars or, <laughs> or you know, things that people relate to. Um, wasn't that a great Netflix show? Uh, and just sort of throw that into a podcast. And even if you're not a scientist, you've probably seen The Mandalorian or The Witcher or, or something like that on Netflix. And so, again, you can make that connection. And uh, it, it really does help to, to communicate. But speaking of pop culture, Star Wars, and The Witcher, some of your coolest content is based on fantasy as well as Dungeons and Dragons. So what was going through your head when you came up with the podcast, Dugons and Sea Dragons? <laughs> well, Dugons and Sea Dragons was kind of an interesting story because, uh, again, this was a, a conference that was being planned. And the program committee realized that they were all Dungeons and Dragons players and started talking about that. And uh, Travis Neal, who now produces Dugongs and Sea Dragons, sort of pulled me in because, well, first of all, he pulled me in as just another Dungeons and Dragons player to come and play with the rest of the planning group so we could all be nerdy together. But we were planning to do an episode of the Marine Conservation Happy Hour as a sum up of the conference you know, get all the leaders of the conference together to do a sort of nice wrap up, which we did and was very, very successful. And then we said, well, why don't we, we're going to play Dungeons and Dragons anyway. Why don't we just do that after this wrap up episode? All the recording equipment will be out there. We can just get a couple of our friends and maybe some newbies who haven't 
played it before so we can explain to the audience who is, is clueless what it is that we're doing and uh and and have it as a sort of a strange silly event and you know it might just be us and a couple of other people josh drew wrote up a, a fun adventure which had um conserving habitats for huge manatees he had giant mantis shrimps and a shark skeleton monster that was in it we had besides myself we had travis nielsen we have heather penny who's one of the conference organizers we have melissa marquez who has done a couple of shows on shark week and is now a best-selling young adults author as well so we had an eclectic crowd of people we recorded it we had a blast the room was absolutely packed we had tons of people descend on us which was a real surprise we thought it would probably be just us and maybe one or two friends but yeah we were absolutely packed we had donations from crack and dice that we were giving out to the audience and uh, we recorded, put it out on Marine Conservation Happy Hour. And we had thousands of people download the episode. It was absolutely incredible. People loved it. So we decided, let's do a series and see how it goes. And boom, it took off. It became a really big thing. And in fact, now we're starting to do spin-off series. So we just did for Halloween, instead of Dungeons and Dragons, we did a different system called Call of Cthulhu, which is a sort of a HP Lovecrafty type horror. But we insert natural science and history into an adventure. So we did one episode, one Halloween series that was based in Antarctica. And we had Antarctic history and exploration and talked about whales and whaling. The recent Halloween one we did about the history of basically the sort of spy industry in World War II, plus Scottish natural history and the Highland clearances and various other things. And we've got a kids one that we do. The kids one was so successful, we actually did a second spin-off, kids one with just girls in. We have a kind of a Mad Max setting coming up soon and we're actually working with Monterey Aquarium who are sponsoring that as well as Crack and Dice and uh, it just came about because the adventurers find in this desert this building that had pictures of marine species on the walls and we just went off on a riff how this was like an aquarium but in this post-apocalyptic world was now in a desert and it just became a thing <laughs> it became a thing so it's like a fantasy monterey bay aquarium and then we contacted the aquarium and they said sure we'll we'll help you out so we'll work out some sort of tie-in that's amazing and that's like that's just is pure science communication because you took something that people love, fantasy, fairy tales, magic, but you're able to tell a real conservation story at the same time. Oh, it's, it's so much fun. And it really does engage people. And some of our fans are absolutely rapid, <laughs> absolutely rabid fans. And they are just so, we take the, the clips from the episodes that we cut out and we put them on our Patreon and people listen to them religiously to hear about the rubbish that we're talking about that we cut out. Uh, very often we go off on complete tangents that are just really nerdy and, and, and too sciencey, and people love it. Yeah, it was really, really successful and we really enjoy doing it. In fact, Josh is doing a paper, Josh, our dungeon master, is doing a paper on looking at the impact of dugongs and sea dragons as a science education medium. That's incredible. Do you know when the paper will be out? 
no idea at the moment. <laughs> and we will not link to it, but that'll be, that'll be really cool to see because a major takeaway from our conversation so far is that science can sometimes be a really scary topic. And sometimes there's a lot of really big words and things that you don't understand. But if you can just remove that aspect and get down to well, what is the basic principle we're trying to say here? And then when you put it in a way like a podcast where you're just hearing two people chat and having a conversation, or you put it into a story game and you're like, wow, I learned something from that. Like, this is really interesting. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's there's a big issue about a lot of scientists who think if they have to communicate with the public, they have to dumb it down. You don't dumb it down, you just cut the jargon out. And you're enthusiastic. You try and bring over the the enthusiasm that you have for science and just try and portray that to the general public and people pick up on it. So we go off on all sorts of crazy tangents about whale poop and seabirds. We have a whole episode when we're talking about guano on seabird islands and the impacts of, of that and, and the impacts of that on the US history. And so all these crazy, crazy tangents, but people absolutely love it because we're passionate about it. We're interested about it. And we portray it in a way that is not patronizing. Simplified, we cut out the jargon, but we don't ever patronize our audience. And um, yeah, it, it just makes this amazing connection. And, absolutely love it highly recommend it if if you're listening and you have your own personal nerdy interest if you're mad about star wars connecting star wars to science it, it will make an immediate connection <laughs> well we'll just have to just have to see what happens but before we close is there anything else you'd want to share with our listeners about ways that they can communicate their science better to a global audience if they don't have their own podcast to go to go chat on but some simple things that they could do that would make a huge difference um i think knowing who your audience is and then tailoring your communication to that audience for example if you were going to give a presentation to a bunch of ranchers about conservation in the Midwest. You do not turn up wearing a suit and tie or a lab coat. You come up wearing plaid and jeans because you break down barriers. You make yourself someone that they can relate to and communicate with. So knowing your audience, understanding your audience, and then using that to help drive your communication. So if you've got a podcast about fishing and you want to talk to recreational fishers, go ahead and do that. But talk to them in ways that relate to them. Talk to them about great recreational trips that you did to catch fish and, and make that connection. Because when it comes to science communication, very rarely does one size fit all. And very often, if you're doing science communication, you're probably talking to a specific stakeholder group or a niche. So try and design your communication for that and get feedback and listen to that feedback to see whether or not what it is you're doing is working or if it isn't. And you don't have to have a million downloads. If your intention is to speak to a particular community, for example, to get them recycling or to get them more engaged in an issue or just to inform them more about a particular type of science, it's, it's not necessarily quantity, it's quality. I couldn't agree more. Well, 
thank you so much. This has been great. And I think you really opened my eyes and I hope our listeners' eyes as well about, you know, there's so many different ways that you can take a topic in the very broad field of science and you can make anyone excited about it just by the way you present it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you're enthusiastic about something, if you feel passionate about something, you can make someone else passionate about something. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of Aquadox. I'd like to thank Dr. Chris Parsons for being on the show this week, as well as thank all of you, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in. As always, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay up to date on the latest Aquadox news. And if you've got the time, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate us five stars in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. I'm Michelle Greenfield. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time here on Aquadox.